Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21. We began this verse last week. Let's continue to study verse 21. This is Paul, the Pauline benediction, or not Pauline, I mean the Hebrew benediction. We don't know whether Paul wrote this. He probably didn't. That, but the, um, that the God of peace who brought up the dead, the, the great shepherd of the sheep, uh, through the blood of eter- the eternal covenant is what it says. And it goes, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This fits very nicely, this phrase, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight fits very nicely with the sermon that I'm going to preach from Thessalonians because the sermon's based on Paul's prayer that concerns God's work in the Christian and our obedience to God. And this morning, so this is going to be a theme here and upstairs, The uh, I don't know if I'd say the word balance, but the twin truths that everything is by God's grace and that we're responsible to work. Okay, that's that's what we're going to explore today. How those two things work together. <clears throat> if in the Reformation doctrine of grace alone, and we believe that we're saved by grace alone, and we believe that we're sanctified by grace as, as well, and we don't believe in any kind of a merger of uh, meritorious works and grace, but grace alone. But nevertheless, the Bible is very clear that we're fully responsible to put into practice what God told us to do. Okay? And so, there is this idea, Philippians probably is the most famous place where you get this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who's at work in you to do His good pleasure. I'm going to cross-reference that verse because that same word for good pleasure is found, udokia, is found in Thessalonians. Thessalonians. So here it says, um, the, the benediction that God um, equip you in everything to do His will. So that's our job. We're to be make sure that we're equipped and that we do God's will. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. God is the one doing the work in us. So both things are true. So, um, and then it goes on to say, through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory. Now here's another one of the solas. I, I mentioned uh, grace alone. Now here to the glory of God alone, another soul of the Reformation. So, um, God's work in us from beginning to end, from salvation through sanctification to glorification, is a work of grace. Paul said very clearly in Galatians, you don't begin in this, are you so foolish as think you begin in the Spirit and you're perfected by the flesh? And so, uh, a very common error is the idea that, okay, yeah, we'll affirm salvation by grace through faith, but everything else from there on is works. And let us prescribe what you need to do to make yourself a better Christian. Um, so much of the Christian living teachings that are so prevalent in um, our bookstores. When I was in Nashville, I would have to say, besides just the rank heresy, Right, when you when you went to the Christian booksellers convention, uh, the biggest, most glorious display that, that that you saw when you first walked in the main entrance, the huge, huge place in Nashville where we were meeting, was Destiny Image. And every title they have is heretical. Uh, 
And it was, it was all these, you know what that is, right, Keith? It's these apostles and prophets and new revelations. And it's what we're writing against in our article. Yeah, it's what we're writing against in our article, exactly. But once you got past all that junk, most of the rest of the displays were Christian living. Now, there's nothing wrong with Christian living, but all this Christian living was sort of an amalgamation of, of, of human wisdom, psychology, how-to, uh, somebody's an expert because they figured out a better way to whatever it is you need to do. And the problem with that is it's the same assumption that Paul was rebuking the Galatians for is that you're starting in the spirit and made perfect by the flesh. Uh, some guru knows a better way to raise kids and they're going to tell you how to do it. Well, maybe, maybe they do know a good way to raise kids. Somebody knows how a better way to have a better marriage. So they write a, there's thousands of these books out there. But what's lacking in every one of them is the idea that all of the virtues that God is ever going to work into our life, He's going to do it by grace and through the means that He's ordained in the Bible, which are means of grace. Well, just, my daughter just went off to college. And I think this is kind of pertinent. We think that good marriages or we think that uh, good people or ethical people, people don't steal or whatever, that's something uniquely Christian. Well, she's... Sorry. Hello. Keep, keep talking. Testing, testing. So we, we have this idea where we'd like to think that if we have better marriages, everybody's going to come and be a Christian because we're, we're the marriage group or we're the, you know, and, and it's just, it's a fallacy. The Mormons are known by and large for good marriages. My daughter's now uh, rooming with a devout Muslim and uh, she is wonderful. The reason they get along so well is she has an ethical base she doesn't sleep around, she's honest, she's kind, she's caring. She just believes in a wrong doctrine. So being nice, you know, and frankly, it's way better to have her for a roommate than a Christian that's a scumbag. <laughs> because it, you get along much nicer in an ethical environment than some Christian stealing your wallet when a Muslim won't. And I think that we have this tendency to think if we're nice enough, everybody's going to be a Christian. And it's not true. The fact that they get along well, my daughter knew what, what, what Islam believed. And say, what well, are you going to be, uh, you know, um, celebrating Ramadan and so forth? And it was just kind to her. He said, well, what do you believe? And there was an honest exchange there. And she may or may not become a Christian, but it's not uniquely Christian to be nice and kind and honest and right. have good marriages. And even Muslims or even Mormons or even some pagans and teach you things, say, if you're less selfish, your wife will like you better. And you'll get along. I mean, that, that's not uniquely Christian. And okay. I just say, say that's yeah. kind of this. The thing that's uniquely Christian is the doctrine of grace. All right? I, I agree. Uh, people can be nice and have good marriages without being Christians. People cannot cheat on their wife and not be a Christian. Uh, but you can't honor God and not be a Christian. You can't find salvation and not be a Christian. And you can't ultimately be conformed to the image of Christ and not be a Christian. So what we have unique is the doctrine of grace. And therefore, if we do good works, which we are commanded to do, and we ought to do all these things, we ought to be virtuous, we ought to not steal, and we ought to be good husbands and wives, and daughters and sons and fathers and mothers and all of the and, and employees and employers and all of the different things. Yes, yes, we must 
because we don't want to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. But the difference is that if all those things become true, we're going to give all the glory to God. We're going to say to the glory of God alone. I, uh, and I'm going to preach on that, so I don't want to, um, uh, I'm going to talk about how Paul did it in 1 Corinthians 15, how he described his own life. So here we have one of the sol- two of the solas, grace alone, glory of God alone, although the word grace is found in the verse, but working in us that which is pleasing is God working powerfully in Christians to make them pleasing to God. Now another point about what Keith was saying, what his daughter's roommate who's a good Muslim and actually ends up being a very good roommate because she's moral and ethical. The only thing is, you can't please God that way. Because if you refuse to give honor to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're not pleasing to God. And then, so the Old Testament says all of our good works are like filthy rags. If we don't come to God on His terms, ultimately we're not pleasing God. Is that right? Okay. Um, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing His sight. Um, by the way, good is defined as ethical actions that, that are revealed by God, that are His will, that Christians are willing to live by. The, living the way God has told us to live. And then um, it says here, uh, by the way, pleasing, I have a bunch of cross-references. Maybe we can just, uh, Robert, do you want to look up uh, Hebrews 12:28, Keith, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Uh, Linda, Hebrews 13, 12 through 15. Now let's see this idea about pleasing God. Okay, Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Okay, so there is a service that's acceptable to God or pleasing to God. Um, and then Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So there God is, there's what is pleasing to God is revealed in Hebrews. And then in Hebrews um, 13, 12 through 15. Therefore, Jesus also, that he may sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the gate, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Okay, so this has to be done through Christ because of what he has done for us and what he is doing in us. So, I had a thought about this the other day, about the idea of separation and why it's so different in the New Testament than the Old. I may mention this in my sermon as well. Um, Some of the most really angry critics of me that I get emails from now are not the liberals, they're not the seeker-sensitive, they're not the compromisers, because they don't read me, they they ignore me. It's these hyper-pious... Um, a legalist, okay? And they're usually angry because of something like I quoted from the New American Standards, so that makes me evil. Or some other 
they have some strange doctrine that they think is the law of God, and they're just screaming mad at anybody that doesn't affirm what they affirm, whatever it may be. And some of them call themselves separatists. And what they mean by that is we have our little parochial enclave and we do things however we say fit. And everything we say and do, down to the little detail, is exactly what God wants. And if there's anything about you that's different, whatever it may be, even if you read from a different Bible, then that proves you're evil. And that kind of a mentality is not, I, I don't believe, the type of separation the New Testament teaches. Stephen. That's true. The Puritans would use the term separatist. And, but they had some political issues that were going on there uh, that maybe we wouldn't see the same way because the, the battle in England was who's going to have the state church. Is it going to be the Anglican church? Or was it Cromwell Puritan? That wanted to yeah, but there they tried to build the kingdom of God through the civil government with something the same kind of thing. We're going to not only separate from the world, we're going to separate a country from the world, and if you try to get into the world, we're going to kill you. Okay. Yeah, so there was some political stuff that we wouldn't agree with, although there's certainly some good theology. But let me, let me explain again the position I preached on this here a few weeks ago. If God intended that the Christian church be a separatist institution, all he would have done was kept the Jewish laws that they already had. Sabbath, the food laws, and um, you know all of the ceremonial laws that they had to keep. The sacrifices, even if the sacrifices went away, if you keep Sabbath, the food laws. What, what's the third one I'm thinking of? Circumcision. That's right. Sabbath, food laws, circumcision were the three things. There's an interesting book by a guy named Johnson about the history of the Jews, and I, it explains all the way up to the present the history of the Jews. And those three things keep them separate and keep them distinct and keep them from ever being assimilated totally into the rest of the world. Now, it's interesting that the New Testament did away with all three of those. Sabbath, the food laws, and circumcision. Why? Because, as I preached a while back, God intended that that he would redeem a people and send them into all of the world. And to be a witness for him. Not to be in an enclave like the Essenes or live in caves or be in a monastery. Dumbest idea they ever came up with uh, during the Dark Ages. If anybody looks like they might really be a Christian, let's stick them in a monastery so they don't come in contact with anybody else. We'll leave the whole mass of Europe sit in illiteracy and squalor and, and damnation. But we've got some people here that we think might know God. We'll put them inside a monastery and build a wall around them. Do you see why that isn't God's idea? Now, in the world and out of it, what separates us from the world isn't idiosyncrasies. In other words, telling them, you can't come to our church unless you learn 400-year-old English, otherwise don't bother coming. That's false separation. True separation is that we have changed lives. So even while we're working at a job with other people that aren't Christian, God has done something to change us so that we obey God's moral law. Okay? And so what's separate about us is that God's changed us. Now, that's not the one, that's not only totally unique because you could see other people that live moral lives, 
but we're the only ones who are doing so because of God's grace. Okay? And so the gospel is to go into all of the world, and we're supposed to be uh, lights in a dark place. And so uh, this idea of trying to create as many eccentricities as we possibly can by making laws that God never made to create a separation that God never intended is ultimately attack on the gospel itself. Because we're saying we got our salvation, we don't care about anybody else. Do you still have? Yeah. yeah I, I think that where you see the separation most is even reading in Hebrews when it says, and they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. It's not that you see somebody moral at work that makes them separate. If they have a real crappy day and everything is going against them unjustly and they look up to God and say, God is taking care of me and have a faith in wow. God while you go through all the crap because everybody goes through crap. That's Can much we more, say that in Sunday school? That's much more. <laughs> I can. I have the mic. <laughs> but that's much more a separation when you see somebody believing in an eternal compared to somebody believing in a okay. temporal. Absolutely. So uh, that we have hope. Be, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. That makes us separate because we're the only ones that have hope. Live lives that are pleasing to God. That makes us separate because we're the only ones that can do that. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Right? And so what's unique is that we have faith in what we do do, we're doing for God's glory. And if if we don't get any um, benefit from it in this world, we still keep doing it, like Keith was saying, because we're doing it for the Lord. Yes, Kathy? The thing that really surprised me one time and I wasn't doing anything. And that was the Muslims that live in the building. They said to me one time, they respect me more when they see my, by just carrying the Bible to the, like, to anywhere I was. And that surprised me very much. I wasn't expecting anything like that because I really haven't witnessed to them. Okay. Um, okay, quick. That's the other church's phone, so we can't do anything about that. Equip you to every good thing to do His well, working in us which is pleasing in sight to Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, this idea of giving glory to God is very, very important. And we would want to live a way that would glorify God. We would want to um, uh, trust Him. Like Keith was saying earlier from Hebrews, where it says, They accepted joyfully the seizing of their property. Or when Christians have been persecuted, they're told to love their enemies. Um, And what's most important to us above all is the gospel itself. That has to be so central. The gospel has to really just become all-consuming to us if we're going to be living valid Christian lives. Because uh, we want to see God's word spread to all the earth. We want to see people converted. We want to see God most glorified, and God is glorified when His Word is preached and His Gospel is preached, and, and people uh, either receive it or reject it, but God is still glorified because He is shown to be just when He judges and merciful when He saves because we are Gospel-centric and we are preaching the Gospel and trying, by God's grace, to live up to its claims and tell people the truth and proclaim that truth to them um, as much as possible. Let's see. Um, why don't we... 
How much, let's just do, I've got time for maybe about three or four verses here. Doug, uh, why don't you go to Doug over here. Doug and Dolores, do you want to do Matthew 7.21 and Matthew 21? Um, skip me. Skip you? Okay. Well, Mary, then you get Matthew 21.31. If you have a daughter, then she can do it for you. Yeah. I think it's only right. <laughs> got to be benefits here. Okay, Matthew 7.21 when you get a chance here. The original one? Yeah. <laughs> uh, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Okay. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter, but the one that does God's will. So, just talking religious isn't the same as giving God glory, right? You can talk a lot of religion, but if your life hasn't been changed by God's grace so that you do God's will, you know, it's, it's all just empty talk. Matthew 21, 31. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> the people they hated the most. He was telling this to the religious leaders. The most despicable sinners around are going to go to the kingdom of God before you will. Now that was the parable of the, of the I think it was the sons. Well, remember one of them said, the father asked the son, go work in my field. And he said, sure, I'll do it. And then he never does it. And then he says to the other one, I'll go work in my field. And, and he said, no, I'm not going to do it. And then he walked away and then he felt, you know, I was really kind of a bad thing to say to my dad, so he goes and works in the field anyhow. And the point was, the one who actually worked in the field is the one that did the will of the Father, not the one that said he would and didn't. So the Pharisees and, and Sadducees said they'd serve God, and they claimed to be the greatest servants of God. But when God came on the scene of history in the person of Jesus Christ and did many miracles to prove to them who he was and proclaimed God's true words to them, they rejected him and hated him. But Tax gatherers and publicans and prostitutes um, who had never made any intention of doing God's will. When this Jesus came to them and, he's, and they saw him do mighty works, some of them believed in him. And they became followers of Jesus and they were the ones doing the will of God. And so that's literally what was going on and that's what Jesus was saying to them in that parable. Uh, where'd the, you want to go to Troy here? Troy, could you look up Romans 12.2 2 when you get a chance? Okay, Bert. Yeah, I have a question, Bob. Now, both of these excerpts or verses that we just went through are works. Yeah. How do you explain that one? Because when God's grace is at work in somebody, God's grace changes them. And in the key in Matthew 7, for example, the real key issue was a willingness to submit to the teaching of Jesus. Remember the building on the sand or building on the rock? The one building on the sand um, wouldn't listen to God, but the one building on the rock, it says, whoever hears these teachings of mine and does them is building on the rock. So, obedience is um, part of faith. When faith believes God, faith obeys God. And 
Paul said in Romans 1 that his ministry was to bring about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles. Okay? So a person who believes by God's grace is a person who confesses that Jesus is Lord and confesses that Jesus speaks authoritatively for God. That's one of the main claims of the New Testament, that Jesus is the prophet that God raised up, that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18, that Jesus is God, Jesus is, speaks for God, Jesus' words are truly God's words, and therefore what Jesus says is God's revealed law. And a true disciple of Jesus is willing to submit to the teachings of Jesus. Because he's, he's the Lord. So, therefore, somebody says, no, I don't submit to Jesus. I'm going to go do what the Pharisees say. That person's building on sand. Now, uh, Robert will bring it over to you here. Ready? Um, I think that verse 21 and Hebrews 13 equip you in every good thing to do his will. Well, we can't really do his will until, unless he equips us. Because we, on our own, we can't do that. And my study Bible down at the bottom says some of the things that he equips us with is faith, faithful, faithfulness, obedience, and perseverance. So mm-hmm. without him, uh, the Lord equipping us, yeah. we can't do it on our own. So it, if, we, if we tried to do it on our, own, on our own, that would be works. But without his grace, no, we can't do that. Right. That's why, that's why we teach about means of grace. And Ryan's writing a book about it, which I've been reading. Uh, about means of grace. Means are how God ordained that if we come in faith in the way he prescribes and trust him on his terms, God's grace will change our lives. Yes. No, and just you know, The way I always experience this or, or, or see this thing is, say you sin, and when you sin, you have a rotten feeling because that you sinned. You have two options. And the net result on the exterior thing can be the same, but I can say, well, I sinned. I'm going to do penance or have a, a penance kind of concept. Or I'm going to work harder so God will like me now anyway. And that's not something of faith. It might look good on the outside and say, you're being generous. I'm going to give some money to buy my, whatever it happens to be. It might benefit somebody else because you're acting ethically, but it doesn't please God. On the other hand, if I fall down and say, I'm a rotten sinner, thank you, God, because you covered even this sin, the gratitude that wells up in me makes me want to act like a forgiven sinner. So I act kindly because God has been kind to me. And it's just, it's the action might be the yeah. same, but the... the yep. Here, over to uh, Troy. He's going to read Romans 12, too. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. All right. Prove there, doki uh, bazo means to put to the test. It's an objective thing. Demonstrate, test things, prove what God's will is, and believe and act accordingly. That's what faith and grace and so on look like. So um, uh, I'll continue with this theme and during the sermon part. When we look at Paul's prayer on one or two Thessalonians one eleven and twelve, and there he uses terms that can be either applied to God or to us, and it's not clear which. And it almost seems like the issue, the idea is both. God does it, and we need to do uh, something. Now, as, as, I'm not teaching synergism. I'm just saying that people of faith who've received grace are willing to take action. 
And after they take an action, they're willing to give God glory that they did. <laughs> and I'd say, look at me. Uh, or remember, remember the two prayers in Luke? The one guy says, I thank you, Lord, I'm not like other men. Or like this sinner over here. And then the other guy says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said the one who, who understood that he was truly a sinner went away justified, not the other. So that's how that works. Um, let me read the rest of Hebrews. Okay. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Now, that's a pretty long book, but he said he wrote briefly. <laughs> Take notice. <laughs> yeah, it took us a long time to get through it, three or four years at least. But um, maybe we're just slow learners. <laughs> or I'm a slow teacher. I, don't, I shouldn't blame you, should I? Um, uh, take notice of, uh, that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom if he comes soon I shall see you. Uh, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. So that's how the author closes this. Uh, this is the only mention of Timothy being in prison. And we don't know any more about it than what it says right here. There's no other information. Um, the greeting, those from Italy greet you, doesn't prove that the writer was in Italy because it could have been people from Italy that were in the church where the writer was that are sending greetings. But it's still possible that's where he was. Now, this, uh, let's look at verse 22, though. There's a couple of theological ideas there. I urge you, there's kind of a play on words in the Greek. I urge you, uh, pa- Parakalo, that means um, to, to call beside, with this word of exhortation, parakalesios. So there's an assonance there that you don't pick up in English. Uh, it would be closer if we said, I exhort you, brothers, bear with this word of exhortation. If it was translated that way, it would bring out the, the Greek better. So see, when a numerical standard doesn't do a good job, I'm willing to say that too. What does it say? Read your King James. Here's the King James. Okay. I and I beseech you, uh, brethren, uh, uh, suffer uh, the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. In few words. Okay. It says beseech there. So but calls it a word of exhortation. And uh, th- these are all valid translations. It's just, um, take poetry, for example. Poetry is very difficult to take from one language and put into another. Do you know, do you know why that is? Because poetry has rhyme and meter. What was that? Great, it has iambic pentameter. <laughs> you went to school, didn't you? <laughs> I heard that somewhere and probably forgot it. But see, if you, if you, when you have things like, um, rhyme or, uh, assonance or meter, they're unique to the language in which the poetry was written, right? And you can translate poetry, but you lose that part of it. All you get are the words or the ideas. And so the Psalms are like that. They're, they're very amazing. Uh, Psalms, uh, the poetry in Psalms, the people that really know Hebrew can see how it was all laid out and how it sounds, how it comes out. 
I'm not saying we don't have good translations, but you're going to lose that part of it. So I'm just pointing out that that's something that's also found in Hebrews here and that we would tend to, to lose. Let me give you another example. Sometimes it can actually create theological problems for us because of misunderstanding. Um, if you just knew Hebrew, or I mean Greek, it would be obvious that the word believe is based on the word faith, that those are two related ideas, the noun and a verb, because uh, pistis and pistuo, faith and belief. But it's just an accident or you know reality of the English language that the word believe doesn't sound like the word faith. It's the verb form of the word faith, but they don't sound alike at all. And sometimes I've seen some bad doctrine based on that seeming misunderstanding, especially the word of faith people. They take this faith and kind of make it some sort of a metaphysical entity of it, which has a life of its own, uh, taken away from even having an object. And then when you have this faith, then all these wonderful things can happen. And they're missing the point that faith has an object to believe in. But faith and believe, the words just don't sound the same, even though they're very closely related. Does that make sense? And now, in other cases, English, it is clear. So, exhort and exhortation would be, one is something you do, I exhort you. A word of exhortation would be the type of word, the type of uh, writing. Um, and that's how, how that works. And interestingly, um, there's William Lane that I that I have enjoyed so much in his commentary on Hebrews, points out that even though Hebrews is fairly long, and it says he called it briefly, he pointed out one of the intertestamental writings of the Jews used the same Greek word for briefly to describe it, and it was a lot longer than Hebrews. So, yes. Hold on a second here. I have a question here, um, and perhaps, I, I don't know if you're prepared for this or not in your in your preparation, but uh, the book of Hebrews is, is commonly referred to as we do not know who, who wrote it. Right. Uh, in my marginal notes, just before chapter 1, it says uh, authorship uncertain, commonly subscribed to Paul. At the end of chapter 13, it's in verse 25, it says, Grace be with you all. Amen. And then in the King James, it continues and it says, Written to the Hebrews from uh, from Italy by Timothy. Have you got any comment on that? Because um, I find this very confusing. Uh, I have to look it up by logo software, but it could be that it's an issue of whether you take certain Greek manuscripts. Uh, pro- I'll tell you what, now I'm just guessing, right? But this is pretty typical. Sometimes when they use the newer Greek uh, manuscripts, there's notations that were put in there by copyists, okay? And then later they said, well, that must have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, so they added in. But if you look at the older versions of it, they didn't have that in there. So generally, if something was missing from almost all of the older manuscripts, it's assumed that it was added in by a, a copyist, so the, the Bible wouldn't normally not include that, Okay? Now, I could look that up. I have, uh, I have the ability to look these things up. But I tell these King James only guys that. They say, oh, you got, you got corrupted Greek manuscripts and, uh, and, and, and all these evil people took all these things out of the Bible. Well, I have now with the Logos software, I just did this the other day because there was a big difference between the King James and the New American Standard. So I pulled up Texas Receptus 
Westcott and Hort, Nessel and Aland, 27th edition. Put them all up there side by side, and they were absolutely identical. So I can find these things out, all right? Now, in some cases, there, there may be some stuff in this, like this little notation uh, that, that the King James translated. It's kind of confusing, and they're both in the King James. Well, these are notations, uh, again, that probably weren't in the original. In fact, it wouldn't be. Why would, why would the original author write, written from Italy by Timothy or whatever? Well, well, no, that's somebody's discussion about what they think happened. Okay. Well, I've got here in NASB, it says, uh, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. So that would obviously seem like somebody else had wrote it if they're saying... Yeah, uh, exactly. It has, and that's what it does say. Take notice that our brother's been released. The fact is, nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. And this has been speculated upon for years and years and years. And wasn't it Luther that thought Apollos did? Um, I think that was his theory. We don't know. It's amazing. Now, why, why wouldn't it be Paul? The main reason most uh, scholars don't believe this is Pauline authorship is, well, there's several reasons. One of which is the Greek is far more advanced than Paul's. Hebrews has eloquent Greek. Paul's Greek is just adequate, not that great. Um, as far as the, 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 the way, in fact, uh, people that can read Greek just as like a second language, just read it and read ancient Greek, manuscripts, whatever, say that Hebrews is the most uh, beautiful uh, Greek in the Holy New Testament. And Luke Acts would be a close second. Paul w- was, wasn't able to write like that. Now, and the other idea thing is that there's a lot of, Emphasis in here that Paul doesn't discuss in his own in his letters, like the high priesthood of Jesus. It's only found in the book of Hebrews. Paul doesn't mention it. And that doesn't mean that Paul didn't believe in it, but it wasn't a, a, a theme that he regularly or he ever actually addressed. So there's reasons for that. We talked about that. You should have known that. We talked about that four years ago. <laughs> Where were you? Oh, okay, you weren't here then. All right. <laughs> When we when we when we started Hebrews, we had a discussion of the authorship, but I, that was years ago. All right, uh, Diane. John MacArthur says in his discussion on the subject, he ends with, "Ultimately, of course, the author was the Holy Spirit." Amen. <laughs> Ultimately, the author was the Holy Spirit, and. Um, so we, we, one of these things we're going to have to ask when we get to heaven. We can have Rick Joyner go for us and find out. <laughs> you <probably did. laughs> no, Rick Joyner went to heaven and talked to Jesus. The least he could have done was asked who wrote Hebrews. No, he talked to Paul. I could have asked him, Paul, did you write Hebrews? <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, Rick Joyner wrote a book about going to heaven and talking to Paul. Found out Paul told him that people make too much out of his writings. They should be more paying more attention to... You don't believe Rick Joyner. No, Rick Joyner is a false prophet. I don't believe that for one minute. I didn't catch the end of it. What did you say? Pay more attention to what? Jesus' teachings than Paul's. That's what, that's what Paul told Rick Joyner in heaven. But it's, it's interesting because this other guy, Jesse Duplantis, went to heaven and talked to David. I know. I wonder where you get your ticket. I think he builds up 
points. I don't know. Yeah, he gets freaker fire miles. Yeah, so Jesse, I think it's kind of ironic because Rick Joyner went to heaven and Paul told him that his writings weren't so great. Paul's, that is. And Jesse Duplantis went to heaven and talked to David, and David said, well, you shouldn't listen to some of those psalms I wrote. I was having a bad day when I wrote them. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just believe the positive ones. Don't believe those laments. Uh, Yeah, somebody should, yeah, somebody ought to talk to Jeremiah. Talk about having a bad day. He had a bad life. (laughs) Jeremiah never had a good day. (laughs) I had a bad, bad life. Um, You know, we don't have time. When's the next time you can be here? I'm going to be leaving Sunday, but it's actually Sunday afternoon, so I can be there. All right. Because if we give the assignment, people can be prepared. Here's the assignment for next week. We're going to do a little interlude between Hebrews and 2 Corinthians. We want to discuss what prophecy is in the church. All right? And we published the latest CIC article. And there are two essays in there. One I wrote and one that Keith wrote. And feel free to disagree, agree, do whatever you want with it. Because that's what prophecy is. It has to be judged. Okay? And so, read the articles. I quote Luther, quote Calvin, quote um, Barnes and um, uh, Matthew Henry. And the interesting thing that I found in doing this research using that Logo software is that the two most prevalent positions in the 20th century weren't even discussed until the 20th century. And the two most prevalent positions in the 20th century were when Pentecostals say God has restored to gifts, so prophecy is God giving me an utterance, and, the, and when he gives me the utterance, that's... God speaking to us, and the, the cessationist argument that there is no prophecy to now has ceased in 100 A.D., okay? And it seems to me, I can't prove this totally, but it seems to me that the two go together because one came in response to the other. Once the idea of prophecy is these ecstatic utterances or whatever you want to call it, and the other one is no prophecy ceased, or prophecy is new revelation, no, there are no new revelations, and so you read that. When I started reading into the 20th century, that's the two positions I noticed. But in the 19th century, 18th century, 17th century, 16th century, the position... What? First century. Yeah, well, in the Bible, hopefully, if we're right about it. Um, prophecy was bringing forth implications and applications of Scripture. And so that is the definition that I defend in my essay. And I believe that that's correct because by that definition, then prophecy is actually binding. Do you know what I mean? Okay, let's, let's just take an example. Make an application. If you tell somebody, if you are rebelling against the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if you have refused to repent, and if you refuse to believe the gospel, and you go on serving the devil, self, and the world, and you do so until you die, the result is you'll go to hell. I'm saying that's prophecy. Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> and because you could say, thus saith the Lord, to that if you needed to, because it really is true. Okay, now that, I didn't quote a Bible verse, did I? No. So, it's binding in the sense that it's a implications. If you took Ryan's hermeneutic class, remember when he talked about implications? Implications are controlled by the meaning of the Scripture. 
not by our mind. And because they're controlled by the Scripture, they're as binding as the Scripture itself. Alright, so that's what, so you read the essays, that's what we defend, and the other corollary that, that I want to discuss it next week Sunday, the corollary is this. There he is, I was just talking about you. <laughs> we are talking about implications being binding because they're controlled by the meaning of the scripture as we teach in hermeneutics, right? Implications are binding. Now, Consequently, prophecy must be judged. And that is the biggest failure of those who believe that prophecies... Well, there's two problems with most people who believe that prophecies for today. Number one, they misdefine it to be some sort of new revelation. And then they don't want to judge it. So somebody says, God told me we're supposed to buy a synagogue. Now, you notice we never said that, did we? <laughs> yeah, and, and and so how do you judge that? Well, God told me we weren't supposed to. So you have the subjective judging the subjective. And here's the other problem. If it really was God saying it, then we're bound to it. It would be a sin to not do it. And 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 so I would argue that we are trouncing over Christian liberty by making things binding that are actually not binding according to Scripture. We, we are, what binds us is the Scripture. We are bound by God's Word to gather together and to open the Word of God and to pray and to preach the Gospel and to do the things God told every Christian assembly to do. We are absolutely required to do that. But we're not required to do it in, in some spot, some building or whatever. We could do it in a home. We could do it in the outdoors. We could do it in this building. We can do it in the other building. So buildings for Christian liberty, meeting is binding. You see that? Okay. And so because of that, and I'll be, we're, we're going to have a walkthrough in the synagogue that we're trying to buy, we're, we're just doing within what's reasonable to make choices to do, to try to do the best job we can to care for the flock and to reach as many people as we can. That's all we're trying to do. Providentially, God will determine whether we actually end up in the synagogue. Now, it looks really good, but we're not making grandiose claims. And His will will be done. His providential will. And we'll discover what it is once it's done. Alright? If it's all done and we're over there in St. Louis Park, then I guess that was providentially God worked it all out, so that's where we would go. Well, and providentially, you'll find out sometime whether or not that really was the thing that God wanted. Yeah, if it doesn't happen, then he was. No, I mean, even if you get in there. Well, no, then. Yeah, but providentially, it, it, it just is, okay? That's it's sort of like when you get married. <laughs> 20 years later, you find out you know it was God's will. You may not like it. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> even, even if, Dolores, you're married to Doug, it was God's will. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm getting into trouble here. All right, don't forget that one. I feel safe. Diane isn't here to say anything. Yes, oh, go ahead. Were we officially done with uh, Hebrews? Um, ask any more questions because we got about ten minutes or seven minutes. Well, no, I just wanted to. Okay, well, you go ahead and finish up. I want to. No, go ahead. What do you have? Well, I just wanted to say that uh, 
this was a great Bible study for me, and I learned an awful lot, not just in Hebrews, but it also has helped me in other areas uh, of me studying Bible on my own as far as how to, uh, you know, get into the Word, so on and so forth. But one of the things I appreciate is I like the tangents that we go off on, which is why it probably took us three and a half years. <laughs> but, and, and I also appreciate the uh, sense of humor that Bob has. I, I don't know if a lot of you were here when we did Hebrews 10.26, but let me just take you back real quick if you recall. Oh, Hebrews, it's, a, it's a replay. Yeah, a Hebrews 10.26. This is just an example of some of the stuff that we've done. For if we go on sinning deliberately and receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment. In a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which the sanctified has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, after we had done that, Bob said, Bob made the comment, well, you don't find that on a refrigerator magnet. And I want you to know, I want you to know, Bob, they, I oh, found no. one on a oh, refrigerator no. magnet. Did you make this? The refrigerator magnet says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Maybe that's a good verse for dieters. <laughs> October 26. October 26. 2003. 2003. Okay, it's October 26, 2003. We started this. Wow. Okay, I got. I, I have the only refrigerator magnet <laughs> in existence that has Hebrews 10, 26 to 31 on it. Thank you. Thank you. It will go on our refrigerator. It's good to have the fear of the Lord. Well, I saw one once. Have you ever gone to stay at somebody else's place or somebody made room so you could be there? Well, one time I was going to this retreat and whoever's room it was supposed to be in, you know, I'd gone away so they could have guests for the retreat and they had a refrigerator there. And a verse on the refrigerator said, if you, if ye be a man given to appetite, put a knife to your throat. <laughs> no. I go, I wasn't hungry. <laughs> I don't know. That must have been some diet that the guy was on. Now, what verse is that? That's in Proverbs. And, and what it basically was saying, don't be tempted by some king trying to make a bad deal for you. Okay, in other words, if you make this king has got bad motives as, as, and uh, don't enjoy his dainties if he's trying to get you to sign on to a bad contract, something like that. It was kind of, he took it kind of out of context, put it on the refrigerator. <laughs> uh, we've got about three minutes. Let me just say as we finish Hebrews, this has been life-changing for me. Uh, the book of Hebrews is so much a part of how I understand uh, just Christianity and the gospel. It's, it's enriched my understanding of the gospel. I've learned through this whole thing. I, I had studied through Hebrews at least twice before in my life, but never in the in-depth that we did these last three or four years. And 
I see Hebrews as so pertinent to what's going on in the church today. I think that Hebrews is probably the best antidote to mysticism that there is anywhere in the Bible. And I didn't realize that when I started this study, but I see it now. And let me explain. I think it's one of the really big applications that we got out of Hebrews. We need to remember that the temptation was to find some other way to God. All right? And so Hebrews is saying there's a new and living way that God has inaugurated through Christ, through His flesh, through His blood, and that to go any other way would be to transgress the covenant and become a covenant breaker that deserves um, to be as the verse we just read, actually, Hebrews 10. Trample under if you transgress Moses. In other words, under the old covenant, God revealed to Moses the only way to God, right through the covenant. And if you try to go some other way, yeah, it's like Korah. The, the earth opened up and swallowed him, and boom. You can't do any other way. You got to go the way God said, which was in Moses. Now Hebrews argues that Jesus is a greater house than Moses, has and, and that the new covenant has better sacrifices, a better sacrifice, one sacrifice, once for all, and that this is the only way to God, and this is the terms of the covenant. Now, why did they want some other way? Well, because the one we have here seems intangible. It has to be accessed by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith is the evidence of things not seen. Do we see Jesus? Not literally. Do we see the blood? Not literally. Do we see the sanctuary? Not literally. Do we see the mercy seat? Not literally. But they, assuming this was written before 70 A.D., which I believe is true, because in there it talks about that, that these things are still going on. They had the ability to go back to what they could see. You could see the blood. If you went on a day of atonement, you'd see blood. You could see the high priest. If you went on a day of atonement, the high priest was there. All of this was tangible and accessible. And my argument would be this, and this is what we use against mysticism. If it was such a horrible sin to go back to what once was valid, the Old Covenant, that, that the writer of Hebrews threatens those who would with anathemas and damnation, how much more is it sinful to go to something God never ordained? How much worse is it to go to labyrinths or uh, tarot cards or... Uh, some sort of Christian mysticism or Christian TM or whatever. Brian and I, Brian Flynn and I are going to California to do a seminar on this this next weekend. Oh, I can't do it. I won't be here. <laughs> All right. We will. How about in two weeks? Are you going to be in town? <laughs> two weeks, he won't be in town. Maybe in three weeks. <laughs> we'll do the prophecy thing. Yeah, I forgot that uh, Brian Flynn and I are flying to uh, Stockton, California, and we're going to do a seminar about this whole thing that's going on, the Christian mysticism. And the book of Hebrews is the antidote to it. And what, we're, what Brian and I are claiming is that going into these practices is a failure of faith because we don't want to just believe 
in Jesus who's in heaven. We need to have some more tangible. You, you, it seems ironic to claim that mysticism seeks a more tangible experience, but that's what they do. They have the smells and the bells and the incense and the icons and the and then a, and then actually practices to make it seem like Jesus is closer to me than he really is. Uh, although we can't get any closer to him than we are by faith. So we'll be talking about that. Uh, Who's putting that? 